I do what I do, the manner in which I preach, I, I do it most of all to protect you from me. And in a sense to protect myself from me. I know that preaching through books is probably not the most popular means of preaching that are, that's present in the, in, the, in the church today. As a matter of fact, I would imagine that in, in a lot of circles it's a rare thing to preach through books. That most of the preaching that goes on today is topical preaching. A verse taken from here, there, or yonder and preached on. Uh, I think we lose something by doing that. I'm not saying that, that it's wrong, that it's always entirely wrong, but there is a strength, there is a value that we have in considering God's word as God's word is given to us. That's why we're doing the book of Romans like we are. It's not that we just jumped into the book of Romans or we're going to pick a verse here, there, or yonder and study it. We're going to go into everything that we find in the book of Romans. All of it. Even the places we don't want to go. If I had to sit down in my office uh, you know, you know, every Monday morning and try to figure out what message I think you guys need to hear the next Sunday, I probably never would preach from Romans chapter 1. It would probably be the last, one of the last places on my list of places to go in the Word of God that I would go to. But by doing things the way that we do them, we protect ourselves from just picking and choosing the, the touchy-feely good things, things that make us feel warm and cozy inside. It prevents us from just doing that every week after week after week and never challenging us with the difficult things of God. Just remember this, as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to a group of Christians whose faith has become known throughout the world because it's so great, because they are enduring such great, severe persecution. They're known amongst Christians in other places for the greatness of their faith. Paul writes his letter to them. And like we said before, Romans is probably the greatest theological treatise that was ever written. It's all about theology. It's all about having right theology. Not just that you know a few things about Christ, but you know a lot about Christ. And you understand how all the, the, the little puzzle pieces in, the, in this thing that we call the church... And salvation, how they come together in him. See, there's a sense in which these, these Roman Christians were very mature in their faith, but at the same time, they were obviously pretty immature in their understanding of things. And that's why Paul writes this letter. And it's why you and I need to study this letter. Not a verse here and a verse there, but the whole thing in its entirety. We are in chapter 1 still. 
some important things that we remember. Maybe in all the verses in this whole book, the most important one may be verse 17. Where it just re-verifies something that is declared in the Old Testament. This is not Paul's thinking. This is not even taken directly from the teaching of Jesus. It comes from the Old Testament. That the righteous will, man shall live by faith. And what the rest of the book has to do with is defining what that faith is supposed to be in and what that faith is supposed to look like. More importantly, who that faith is supposed to be in. I tell people all the time that Christianity is very different than every other religion in two aspects. One of those is every other religion is all about you doing, about you making yourself right, about you keeping a particular set of rules. And and you're okay as long as you keep them, and if you don't, you're in deep weeds. Christianity says this, that there in fact is a set of rules. That is the word of God. But you don't keep them. You don't keep the word of God. As a matter of fact, you're incapable of keeping the word of God perfectly. And that's true for everybody in this room. So if you're going to be right with God, God's going to have to do it. You can't do it. You don't have the ability to do it yourself. God has to make you right with himself. And he does that. The righteousness that we gain, the righteousness that is required for heaven. Righteousness, perfect righteousness is the key to heaven. Without that key, no one ever enters into heaven. We cannot earn it for ourselves. If we have it, it has to come from us as an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. He is that righteousness. It is through him, in him only, that we have salvation. Faith in him. Faith in what he has done for us. Good works are certainly part of the picture. But you need to understand, there are people who believe today, they they call themselves Christians, they believe they're going to heaven because they're good people. Because they do some good things. Because in some ways they look like Jesus, they do the kind of things that Jesus did. That is part of being saved, but you need to understand something, that is the fruit of being saved, it's not the fruit that saves We live in a world that desperately needs to hear this message. Sadly, there will be people who die today that never in their lifetime ever once hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There may be people in your neighborhood that fall in that category. 
the challenge for you and I and for the church as a whole in every age has been this, is to, to not only know the gospel and understand the gospel and receive the gospel, but it's also to spread the gospel. Because it is the only means by which anyone will ever be saved. There is no other way. Every other religion is a dead-end street that leads to damnation. That's not very popular to say things like that today. People believe that there are many ways, there's many routes to God, but that is not what the Bible tells. It's not what Jesus tells. It's not what God has spoken forth from the very beginning of time. There is one way, there is one truth, there is one life, and that is Christ. Everything else is a dead-end street. We're going to start with verse 24 this morning. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, how popular do you think that message would be in today's world, in today's culture that we find here in the United States? There are a lot of people that would be absolutely appalled by those words that I just read. There's a sense, I would imagine, that most of us in this room have some sense of not necessarily liking what is said. But it is God's word. And it may grate against our sinful nature at times. And let me tell you something, it will grate against your sinful nature at times. And it shouldn't surprise us that that happens. Because we still have that sin within us. Is trying to redirect our thoughts, our minds, our practices, our life in any way to lead us away from God, not to Him. So, what is the lie? Verse 2 For the exchange, the truth of God. For a lie. Well, you think about lies. What was the very first lie that Adam and Eve ever heard? 
We don't know how long they existed in the Garden of Eden and all that before that day of temptation came. And then in the day of temptation came and the first lie they ever heard in their whole lifetime. Because God had told them that uh, he had put them in the Garden of Eden and he told them that they could eat of any tree in the whole garden except for one. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them that on the day that they ate from it, they would surely die. That is what Satan used. Did God really say that to you? In essence, what Satan told them was God was lying to them. That he told them that because they, he did not want them to be like he is. They bought it hook, line, and sinker. In other words, they trusted in themselves. They trusted in their, in, in, in their own thoughts, uh, in, in their own being, rather than trusting in the God who created them. They set off on a dangerous course. And look where it has led. That one lie, in a sense, is responsible for every wicked, every evil, every terrible, every atrocious deed that mankind has ever done. In essence, what Paul is saying here is they gave up the true God for a false God. They entered into things like idol worship. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Let me just say that we see that reflected in ourselves, every one of us. I mean, we really do. There's a sense in which we're self-worshippers. And I know this is true for everybody here. You may not see it so much in yourself, but let me tell you, even if you don't see it in yourself, other people probably see it in you. We all believe that we're the most important thing there is. I mean, we really do. You know, when things happen, what is the first thing that goes through your mind? You think, well, how is this going to affect me? Is this going to affect me in a good way or is this going to affect me in a bad way? Idols. You know, you look at the Old Testament, idol worship is everywhere. And it's nonsensical. It's not even reasonable. It's like something crazy people would do. Isaiah almost makes a joke of it. So some guy goes out into the forest and he cuts down a tree and he, and he takes the wood home and he uses some of it to cook his dinner and he uses some of it to build a table and this, that, and the other. And, and there's a little bit left and he carves it into an image and he falls down before it and he worships it as a god. Isn't that ridiculous? But how often have we done the same sorts of things? I mean, what really are the priorities in your life? Honestly. 
What is the most important, what are the most important things to you where you are right now? Is God the very centermost of everything? Does he get the best of your time? Does he get the best of your giving? Does he get the best of this? Does he get the best of that? Or how often does God, on the other hand, just wind up with whatever's left over when you do everything else that you do? Man became a worshiper of himself. And we see that reflected in people the way that they are. Now, obviously, in this text, he's going to be talking about homosexuality. Right? I mean, you saw that. As we read through here, you saw that. Okay? Now, I want to address that. This is a hot topic in our culture today. If you haven't heard anything about stuff like this going on, then you've been walking around with a bucket over your head. It's in your face. It's everywhere. Now, I want to say some things about this. It's a sin, and like all other sin, it's something the church has to address. It's something the church has to deal with. But very often, some people want to make it out to be the worst sin of all. In other words, it's a sin. You know, some certain things are sins, but they're lesser sins. This is a really, really bad sin. And sometimes people would say, well, I wouldn't do things like that. I could never do something like that. Why Paul chooses this particular sin to address here, I cannot tell you. Why is it he elaborates so much of it uh, on it in this particular text? I can't tell you that. There are all kinds of other sins that he could have put here and substituted here and said the same kinds of things about it. So why is it he focused in on homosexuality? I think it probably has to do with this is because it was very, very prominent in the culture in which the Roman Christians lived. We know that. We know that homosexuality being practiced was very common amongst the Greeks for certain. And the Romans to some degree as well. Alexander the Great was homosexual. Or bisexual at the very least. We know that. He died from a, uh, an STD. Sexually transmitted disease. That's what he died from. He had a troop of soldiers who were homosexual lovers with one another. And in their mind, it strengthened them. Because when they were fighting alongside of each other, they were not just fighting for another soldier. They were fighting for someone they loved. You'll notice here that even though there's a focus on that, it's not the only sin that's mentioned here. I mean, it's, it's probably pretty easy for a lot of us to be able to say, you know, that's someplace I have never gone before. It's ne- I've never had any inclination for that. I've never had desire for that. I don't want anything to do with it, so on and so on and so on. 
But what if Paul had focused on truth as opposed to lying? Or what if Paul had focused on being angry? These kinds of passages need to make us reflect on where we are. Because this may not be a besetting sin that you struggle with, but it is a besetting sin that some people struggle with, and they struggle with it a very great deal. And sometimes it has a lot to do with forces present in their life that you don't have to deal with. I don't know what your family life is like, but very often family life has to do with sexual orientation that children, as they grow up, express. Studies have shown that that very often when men come out of the closet... if you begin to look at their family life, and this is not 100% all the time, but very often what you're going to find is they came from a home where they had a wimpy dad and a domineering mom. A father, in essence, who was not really a father to them. Now, let me just say, that's, this is, I mean, study after study have shown that that is kind of a product very often that results. I really believe this, that one of the biggest social problems that we have today is that parents are not parenting. I think that's one of the the, the, the reasons that the things have got to be messed up as much as they have in our day, and that is that so many parents today are not parenting their children, and part of that parenting means dads teaching their sons how to be men and moms teaching their daughters how to be women. There are a lot of people out there that are letting other people raise their kids. And it's becoming more and more common in our day. Notice here that he talks not just about men, but he talks about, he starts out with the women. Now, we'd be going, gosh, that just, usually when we think about this kind of stuff, we don't think about the women so much as we think about the guys. But Paul starts with the women. Women having relations with women that they should only have with their husbands. He demonstrates that these things are unnatural. Remember we were talking about natural revelation last week, general revelation, how in creation, there's, it, the, creation itself is all the evidence we need to conclude that there really is a God. So that no one is going to be able to stand before God in the end and be able to say, well, I just didn't know you were. And he's going to say, well, you should have because all the evidence of, my, of me being is right there, has been right there before you all the time. 
mean, nature itself. I mean, what is the purpose of sex? The purpose of sexual relationships between males and females in every species is to do what? To produce offspring. So that species will continue to exist. Parents having children. And that's true for us as much as it is for fish and insects. In other words, Paul's saying here is this, this particular sin is just contrary itself to nature itself. It's contrary to natural or general revelation. And then the same thing for the men in verse 27. Now, let me just say something, and that is this, and that is that the church has no choice but to speak out in regard to these matters, period. We have to. But let me tell you, very often the church does it in a very wrongful manner when they do it. They do it with a condemning heart and mind. I really believe this, that if all of us spend as much time dealing with our own sin as we try to deal with the sins of other people, we'd all be a lot better off. Because like we said before, what if, what if instead of using this particular sin, Paul used honesty or gossip or something like that, which he very easily could have, where would that leave you? Innocent or guilty? I want to challenge us with another idea this morning, and that is this, that even in the Garden of Eden, even though God let loose the reins a, a little bit in regard to sin, he never let go of the reins. If he had done that, mankind never would have made it out of the Garden of Eden. I mean, what would you consider to be one of the, like, the worst kind of sin that you could commit against another person? I think probably most people would say it would be murder. It's got to be like that, you know, this, the top of the list of, of, of bad things we could do to other people would be to take their life. But here we had murder in the second generation of mankind. When Cain killed Abel, his brother. So sin went deep, and sin went deep quick. And that's not after years and years and years and years and years. That was like right at the very get-go this happened. What you and I would consider the worst sin you could commit against another person right there in the family of Adam and Eve. The 
the point I'm trying to make here is this, is as bad as man is, man could be a lot worse. If God had let go of those reins completely from the, that would have been the end of it. Now, God has loosed the reins, and mankind has done a lot of really, really, really bad things, individually and corporately and etc. But no person has ever been as bad as they could be. Adolf Hitler could have killed a lot more people than he did. I mean, even in the middle of this, you see God's been restraining sin from the very beginning. And if he hadn't restrained it, that would have been the end. The beginning would have been the end. He hasn't left us to ourselves. If he had, we wouldn't be. My whole point here, guys, is, is, is some people believe that this grace that we've talked about already in Romans here, that it's a New Testament concept. What I'm talking about is grace started back in the Garden of Eden. That God showed grace to Adam and Eve. Notice here in verse 29, just so we don't think this is all about this homosexual thing. He mentions other sins. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed. Has anybody here ever been guilty of greed? Have you ever wanted something that someone else had? Have you you ever in your lifetime been perfectly, absolutely satisfied with what you've got and had no desire to have anything else? Envy. Have you, been, have you ever been envious of anything or anybody? Or murder? Everyone in this room is guilty of murder. How can I say that? Because in essence, Jesus says that. Just remember the Sermon on the Mount. I was talking with Rich about this just the other day. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came to, 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 to obliterate legalism, legalistic religion that taught and believed that if you, taught, if you kept the particular set of rules, then you were doing great. You, in essence, kept yourself right with God, you, in essence, gained your salvation by your own doing. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of legalists who believed if they literally, in their own mind and in their own insight, kept those Ten Commandments, then they were perfectly good. But Jesus dropped an atomic bomb on their legalism. Because he knew there were people that came there that day that could say, and, and I would assume most people in this room could say this, I have never killed anybody, ever killed anybody, literally. 
killed anybody. But what Jesus says, that may be true, that if you've ever been angry with another person, then you've broken that commandment, not just a little bit, but sufficiently enough for you to be thrown into hellfire for all of eternity. So where does that leave us? It leaves us all guilty. We may be sitting here going through this list and saying, well, you know, I'm not guilty of homosexual whatever. You know, I'm not guilty of greed. I'm not guilty of this, that, and the other, and whatever. But let me tell you, there's a sense in which we're all guilty of all of them. So what I'm saying here is the church has to respond to these things because God's spoken about these things. This is what God says. It's not what I say. It's not what the PCA says. It's not what Springs Church says. This is what God has said. This is what Jesus has told us. That these things are sin. They're contrary to God's will. They're against the law of God. Gossips. Most people here say, well, I'm not a gossip, but let me tell you something. There's a sense in which everyone in this room is. We love to hear juicy tidbits about other people. And very often we freely share those with others. That's what gossip is. Why do we do that? Because it makes us feel better. It makes us feel better because we can say, well, look what so-and-so did, and then we have in our mind say, well, I would never do something like that. They're really, they're really worse than I am, so it makes us feel better because we think we're on a, in a better position than they are. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen over and over and over again as a pastor. People describing to me people that they have disdain for because they are a particular way. And I'm sitting there listening and I'm thinking, you know who you sound like you're describing to me? Yourself. I've seen it time and time and time again. The truth is none of us sees ourselves the way that other people do. You know who our biggest idol is? Me. There's a sense in which we are all our worst enemy because we idolize ourselves. We excuse our own behavior. And condemn others for theirs. How often do we do that? Not only that. Another thing that Paul addresses in verse 32 is we not only do certain things, 
that we encourage other people to do the same. I mean, what are we doing when we get that little tidbit and we're sitting around in our little group and we want to share with them what I heard about so-and-so? I mean, the only reason we'd ever do something like this is because we want people to think highly of us. Look what so-and-so did, and with the assumption they're going to conclude, well, you would never do that. You talk about them for doing it, so you never do that yourself. But how often are we guilty of doing the very same things, the same sort of things that we condemn other people for doing? And how often do we encourage people in these things? Do you really believe this? I mean, really. But by the grace of God go We used to have a, I had a seminary professor that, you know, he, he said this, you know, when you get all uppity about yourself and you think you're great and whatever, he said, one of these days God's going to let loose of the reins and let you see what you really are capable of doing. Pride is a terrible, terrible thing, and I think very often Christians are up to their necks in pride. I believe this, I believe as you grow to a Christian, you become more concerned about your own sin and a whole lot less concerned about the sins of other people. In other words, you're more concerned about cleaning up your own house than everybody else's. Misery loves company, and very often it's the sins that we are guilty of, we encourage other people because <laughs> it makes us feel okay. Can't be that bad. Someone's who's doing the same thing I did. It's not the way, guys. Yeah. Sin is terrible. It's an awful thing, and, and we have to deal with it. But we have to deal with it in a godly manner. I shared with you from when I came back from General Assembly that our denomination, because it's been challenged by the culture around us, the church has to speak forth and you know, when it comes to things. And we had to speak forth as far as you know, the, the gay rights, LGBT stuff, it's, it's out there. It's all over the place. And, and, and even the world expects the church to say something about it. So we adopted that Greenville statement on human sexuality that was signed by lots of Protestant uh, leadership just a few, couple of years ago, including R.C. Sproul, some people that you guys would know, and John MacArthur, and 
and others. We adopted that as our official statement in regard to this particular social issue that's going on. But I tell you what, I love our denomination for a lot of reasons, and that is this. is One is this, is that when we see sin, we deal with it. But number two, that when we deal with it, we do it in a godly, God-honoring fashion. There were two men. These are pastors in the PCA who stood up before 1,500 other men and confessed to us that they have leanings toward this kinds of sin. In other words, they feel the need or they feel an attraction, a physical sexual attraction to other men. Now let me tell you, I don't think that, it, that, that, that people would be able to do that if they did not feel confident that the people around them would love them and care for them and seek the best for them in the middle of all of that. You know, there are a lot of denominations. If they did something like that, you would be defrocked on the spot. You would be out of the ministry, gone forevermore. And that's because some people see homosexuality as a worse sin than all other sins. It's just this god-awful, terrible, worse sin. And if you're one of those, you're gone. Now, let me tell you something. It would be a totally different thing if both of these men were not able to say, even though I have those inclinations, I know that it is a sin because Scripture tells me it is, that God has said that it is. So it's something I cannot pursue. And I have never had a homosexual relationship with another man. But it puts them in a very hard place. One of them said, here I am like 40 or 50 years old. I'll never be married. I'll never have children. When I die, that's the end of my family line, period. I've got nothing. But tell me, those men don't have a commitment to Jesus Christ in a, to a magnitude that probably very few people in this room, if anybody has. He's their strength. I'm glad we're in that kind of a denomination where we recognize that we're all sinners and certain sins are not worse than other sins. And we reach out to people like these two men lovingly. Helping them, not condemning them, not ready to kick them out. Because again, what if the sin Paul was talking about here wasn't that? What if it was anger? What if it was greed? These sins are not worse sins, but they are sins.
Things like this will make you think more about myself. I'm not talking about Keith's sin. I'm talking about myself. The fact of the matter is everybody needs as much of Jesus as they can have of Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is a life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And it's true for all of us. Every one of us. Not truer for some and less for others. It's absolutely 100% true for every one of us. So what would you say to someone who came to you and wanted to talk with you about the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin and I'm gay. What are you going to say to them? Number one, it needs to be the truth. But number two, it must be lovingly applied. 